Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we talk hoops as Team Canada gets set to face Serbia in the semifinals of the FIBA World Basketball Championships in Manila. Win or lose, it has been a great run already for the Canadians with wins over defending champs Spain and Slovenia. We dig into what's put such a big bounce in the team's step at this tournament. We continue our look at back to school with problems facing classrooms right across the country, and that's a lack of teachers. What's causing it, and what could be a solution? We find out. Royal commentator Patricia Treble joins me to look back at one year since the death of Queen Elizabeth II with some memories of my time in London in the days that followed, and we talk about how the new king is adapting to the throne in his first year. But first, thousands of conservatives are gathered in Quebec City for the party's convention. It comes at a time when the polls have put real wind in their sails. Longtime party strategist Fred Delory joins me to talk about what Pierre Polyev is doing right these days and what challenges he and the party could face in the future as well as in any future election. We're going to start tonight in Quebec City. We have some great guests coming up, including our first one. And we're going to start in Quebec City, where more than 2,000 federal conservatives are gathered, uh, rallying there to try to figure out how to win the next federal election. When and if it will, if it will roll around. But when it is, we don't know just yet. And, of course, polls over the summer have no doubt put a lot of wind in the sails of the party as they head into this convention, as they gather in Quebec City. For a while, we didn't have a lot of these conventions in person. So this will be a first opportunity as well for everyone to get together. Calgary MP Stephanie Kusi told the crowd there is a buzz in the air. I think as conservatives, we can all sense it. There is a real buzz, an appetite for change from one coast of this country to the other. There you have it. Uh, the obvious strategy here is for leader Pierre Polyev to make sure that this is a celebration of this surge of that of that wind in the sails and not a time for there to be any signs of division within the party. Party conventions, like all political parties themselves, can be minefields for even the most confident and well-prepared leader. My next guest compares his leadership right now, his authority over the party to as robust as fortified wine, strong and impactful. But even then, uh, these part conventions can be, or these party policy conventions can be a bit of a minefield. I've covered more than a few of them over the years and uh, what the delegates want and what the leader wants to see don't always happen. Now, the hope, again, in Quebec City uh, is that they will unite behind some key issues such as affordability, the state of the country after eight years of the Trudeau Liberals in power. Here's how Pierre Polyev put it. Justin Trudeau, of course, would like us to erase our past and cancel our future and replace it with the dystopia that now exists in this country after eight years of his government. He's always one for a bit of hyperbole. I don't know about dystopia, but it's a good word. Delegates, again, from writing associations across the country will debate making changes to the conservative policy handbook. There are economic issues, obviously, front of mind, affordability, but also some that veer more into the culture war issues. And those are the ones that the conservatives' opponents often hang on uh, come election time to try to hammer away at them. And they're all too aware of that. One person who's very aware of that is my next guest, Fred Delory. He was the 2021 National Campaign Manager for the Federal Conservatives and Error. O'Toole, who he led to victory as Conservative leader in 2020. He previously served as Director of Field Operations uh, for Ontario Premier Doug Ford. He worked for Stephen Harper. And uh, these days, he's a managing partner at Delorier Public Affairs, and he joins me now. Fred, thank you so much. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I mean, the spirit, spirits obviously have to be high going into this one with the polls. Uh, you must get that sense that, that this has been a very um, positive summer for people who vote Conservative. 
It's been incredible, really. You know, conventions are always a great time. They're always a lot of fun. You got people from all over the country that come together, that share your views and ideals. Um, and you get to do it only every two years. For our, In our case, it's uh, every four years because of the pandemic. We couldn't meet in person. Um, but there's no question the bump as well in the polls has been phenomenal. And um, my only concern is that, you know, people are getting a little too excited. We still have two years to go. Um you know, there's only so far we can grow. And, and with that, we have to be cautious as well. Right. Don't count your votes before they're cast. Uh, in other words, well, I mean, you no were one, talking. No you wrote, voted yet. Yeah, exactly. You were talking today about hearing from folks that believe the party could win 200 seats to sort of back into Mulroney territory. Yeah. Um, you, you pointed out back in June, actually, after those by-elections, you wrote an article about sort of red flags going up, about, about especially about Polyev's leadership in some ways, just the divisiveness, the tone. What do you think changed over the summer that sees these numbers starting to shift? Well, you, you're, you, exactly. What I wrote in the, after those by-elections, if you recall, we had a really good lead in the polls nationally going into those by-elections, but we, we didn't grow at all in the by-elections. So the polls meant nothing. And that was very concerning. So when I wrote that piece, I think it got a lot of attention. There's a lot of people talking about it. Um, what Mr. Pauly has done this summer, though, he's, he's launched that massive $3 million ad um, going out with his wife speaking about him, which I think was quite brilliant how they did it. Um, they had her tell the story, and she did a very good job of it, uh, really introducing Canadians to him. Uh, a lot of Canes do not know who Mr. Poliev is, so when they get to see that, uh, they see him for the first time, and they see him through a really good, uh, a really good piece. Yeah, I mean, I remember my days in Ottawa. You know, when it would count, there was Stephen Dio or Michael Ngadiev. The, the the key to conservative success was to define your opponent before they can define themselves. And you get the impression that over the summer, that Trepolyev's attempted now to not be defined by the way that the Liberals will no doubt define him come election time. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, Mr. Polyev has been leader of this party for a year, and the Liberals have really done nothing on him yet. Uh, if you look. To your point, um, when Stefan Dion was leader, we came out very, very aggressively. When Mr. Ignatiev was leader, maybe even more aggressively. I remember when Mr. Trudeau was elected leader of the, of the Liberal Party. I was director of communications for the Conservative Party at the time. And I remember the day when he won, he went on the stage. We released our attack ads seconds after. Um, now, they didn't work in that case with Mr. Trudeau. He did beat us. But it worked very well with Dion and Ignatiev. And it's strange that the Liberals have not done that to Polyev. He doesn't. That's their mistake. And he uh, obviously benefited from that. And now he's out defining himself very well. Yeah, you mentioned that that he has he's been able to do something that, and, and you know this from your time with Aaron O'Toole as well. And I'm not sure that the circumstances were very different. I think you pointed out that Aaron O'Toole's first full in-person caucus meeting happened two weeks after the election, so he never had a chance to really rally his party. But tell me a bit about where Polyev's success has been in trying to maintain some of that discipline, which could be really hard in what is essentially now a pretty big tent party on the right. Well, look, when you're ahead of the polls the way you are, discipline is, comes natural. Everyone wants to be a part of uh, a victory. So it's a lot easier. Um, that's the biggest thing that allows uh, a unified front. Um, so as long as the polls are good, you know, delegates and Conservative Party members across the board are going to be very happy. Uh, it's when those numbers shift. And that's one of my concerns, as I mentioned earlier. Like, we're two years out, potentially, from an election. We have a big lead today. Uh, that may change. And when that changes... It's going to be interesting to how Mr. Polyev and his team uh, deals with that because there will be people who will start raising concerns. Right. And I suppose, where you start, happen, but. Right. I suppose where you start to see some of those red flags is on a weekend like this weekend. That's where you need to be on the lookout for those divisions, right? Because they're going to pop up here. You're going to hear what the, the grassroots uh, likes and doesn't like about where you're headed.
you can see those for sure. Um, but what's interesting is from what I've seen and people I've talked to, it feels like this is very much a Polyev convention where the vast majority are his people, people that support him. Uh, those are the people that uh, were uh, delegates to Quebec City for this convention. So I think, um, you know, the policy resolutions that are debated and passed there are going to be passing at his blessing. Um, you know, his team seems to be very confident in that. Right. And one of the things I've been found interesting over the summer, and this is a lot of been, I mean, I, I covered Pierre Polyev when he was just a young MP. Uh, and even then, I mean, he goes off, he goes off the rails sometimes, but generally he's been, he's been very disciplined. And one of the things he's managed to do this summer that I think has been to his benefit and the party's benefit is stay disciplined and focused on certain issues that seem to resonate because his popularity is up amongst young Canadians. The party's popularity, at least according to these polls, is up amongst young Canadians. And I sense that wasn't a wasn't seen as a fruitful demographic even three years ago. I've never seen it in my life. Uh, I've been involved in politics for, for, you know, my entire career uh, for decades, and I've never seen us, the Conservatives, winning youth votes. So it's definitely something different is happening here. Mr. Polyev is very, very disciplined. He's also disciplined at, at pivoting off of things. If you recall, when he was running for leader, one of his hallmark parts of his platform was was cryptocurrency. That was right. the big thing that he was going to do that was going to save us from inflation. He was way off the mark on that. You never hear him talking about that anymore. Yes, uh, no. He, he pivoted quite successfully on that. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to those as well, because there are certainly some areas where, I mean, you know, it's it has been one of the things about these polls, as you mentioned, it has been summer, right? So, I mean, people sort of tune, even people who are really into politics tend to tune out a little bit. Um, but, you know, even on the best prime minister thing, I mean, part of this is, I, I guess, when you look at what's happened with Justin Trudeau and the liberals, I, I guess the worry here is you can't bank too much on inflation continuing the way it is for the next two years and people's absolute fatigue with Trudeau being as consistent as it appears to be right now. I mean, those seem to be uh, in the works for the next election, but you never know. No, absolutely. Look, uh, we've seen it many, many times, you know, and I've said it many times. The liberals may not be very good at governing, but they are tremendously good at campaigning. They can find those wedge issues and exploit where they can. And, uh, you know, and that's one of the things, too, we have to look at. Is Mr. Polyev actually popular or is just Mr. Trudeau so unpopular that he's the alternative right now? So that's where the, the votes are going. Um, and we'll have to see how things unfold over the next couple of years. This could I, I do think we're going to be seeing the most divisive, negative, vicious election campaign we've ever had in this country because you have two very aggressive, well-spoken, strong communicators both running at the same time against each other. What will you be looking for this weekend in terms of, I mean, obviously delegates bring up policies that that can be tricky, that, that can be thorny. Uh, I think you've seen that in your days, obviously. I've seen that at other conventions as well. Every leader faces them. What are some of the ones that you're going to be looking for that could, um, that could be, you know, thorny, do you think, for the leader? There's a couple of motions uh, that are certainly going to be getting attention uh, from a lot of people. There's a couple of them that are, you know, can be described uh, or that are focusing on, on transgender rights. Um, that will be uh, that'll be interesting to see how those unfold. And there's some on vaccines that you could say are almost anti-vax type um, type uh, uh, motions or policies. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how those go. And what, it's going to be interesting to see if those pass. Um, and if they do, what kind of numbers they get. As I mentioned, this is well, this is a Pierre Polyev convention. 
Um, you know, when he won the leadership, the membership exploded in our party to numbers that have unheard of in Canada in terms of political parties and memberships, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of members. Um, so these people, you know, his people have come out to this convention. And I do believe like whatever passes there are going to be the policies that uh, Mr. Polyev supports. Um, we, our party is very different than other political parties. You know, the Liberals have, you know, they have their conventions. They'll discuss some policies that will pass. You'll never hear them again. We actually have a living, breathing document, the policy declaration. That is a permanent document of the Conservative Party that gets updated every two years at our convention. Um, and it's a very important part of our of our party. And it's what's supposed to be our blueprint for when we take government. So what motions come out of here are really going to tell us, I think, what direction Mr. Poliev wants to take the country. Yeah, you, you pointed out in, in something that you wrote for iPolitics or on your Substack, which I pe- recommend to people, uh, that this could be a really important convention given that there's a new leader. Uh, there seems to be a you know, true belief that the next election is winnable, if not a majority, uh, that the, the policies that emerge from this one are going to be really important. And that's not always the case with these conventions. Well, that's it. And we, you know, Mr. Polyev has done a fantastic job of attacking Mr. Trudeau, of showing and explaining why the Liberals need to be defeated. But now this is the opportunity to say, well, this is what we're going to do once we win. Um, that's very important. we got to push that out there. And that's why this convention is going to be important. We're going to see finally what is the plan. Yeah, I, I guess because at a certain point, every leader has has to has to switch gears a little bit away from the attacking of the of the current because it's easy, obviously, as an opposition leader to attack the current government and then say, okay, well, we understand these are very big issues. You look at affordability; it's a massive issue. What are you going to do about it, right? And I guess we'll hear a bit more about that. There's also issues like climate change, which are touchy. I mean, I think a lot of Canadians maybe not don't like the carbon tax. It's not a big deal in some of the areas where you have to win seats, like BC and Quebec, um, because they have their own. Uh, but these are issues that that the Conservative Party of Pierre Polyev is going to have to find its voice on. And as you know from working with Aaron O'Toole, that can be a tough line to walk. It is tough, but it's it's interesting. You know, a couple of years ago, carbon tax was not a hot issue. People were more willing to pay it. Now with inflation um, out of control the way it is, people are really feeling it. And if you can, anything you can tie into it, um, you it, it's successful for you. And if even whether it's true or not, that's that could be debated. But if you're out there pushing that carbon tax is costing all of your costs to go up, people will believe that. Um, and if you look at like Nova Scotia, my home province, um, right. we had major wildfires this summer. Uh, we had a lot of major issues that you can talk, you know, climate change impacting on it. Uh, and that, you know, so you would think that carbon tax would be something that people would be fine with. Um, but inflation and gas prices are so out of control there that, uh, you know, people are more uh, upset that they're paying carbon tax because that's what's in front of them right now. Uh, so it's it's a hard balance to find. Um, but I think it's working for Mr. Polyev right now. Um, but if inflation does get under control, that will that will shift again. Yeah. And obviously you fought elections against the Liberals. Where do you think they're looking? Do you think, I mean, I, it feels like they're going to roll out the, the, a very a very typical playbook, but that might not work again. So what do you think they're looking at? Well, it works every time for them when they go negative and they, they, they you know, politics is about contrasting with your opponent. If they can exploit things that they think Canadians don't like about Conservatives, then that's what they'll do. Um, you know, it's it's really hard. I think the, the Liberals are in a funny situation where, you know, inflation is out of control. Uh, costs of living has gone up, and it, it is a very difficult thing to to combat. And we're seeing it around the world. We're seeing in all other countries, there's an anti-incumbency feeling there. Yes. So it's very hard. This isn't just a Canadian thing. 
we tend to just look in on our borders and, and think this is happening here. But throughout Europe, uh, you know, the UK and all these other countries there, we're seeing governments are being thrown out everywhere and on the verge of being thrown out everywhere. So there's a real anti-incumbency thing happening in the world. Uh, just like in, during the pandemic two years ago, there was a very pro-government movement afoot. Uh, so again, though, two years from now, who knows what the landscape's going to be. What yeah, the liberals need is to get there. They need to get to that two-year mark. If they go before then, they could be in big trouble. Yeah, and a, and a last very easy question for you. I know you're an NFL fan. You're a Dolphins fan. Uh, the regular season kicks off this week. There was heartbreak in the wild card last year. Do you have high hopes for the Dolphins to uh, to achieve uh, achieve anything big this season? I have every expectation to win the Super Bowl, uh, and it's going to be amazing. And it's uh, yeah, no, I, I I'm glad you asked that question. But no, and, and I truly believe that actually, Dolphins are winning the Super Bowl this year. There you go. So, so 200 seats in the next election for the Conservatives at a, at a Miami Super Bowl. You never know. Listen, you never know. Uh, football and <laughs> politics are weird beasts. You've been watching them a long time. Fred, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great job with you. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. We're interrupting our programs to inform you Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has died. Queen Elizabeth was the longest serving monarch in British history. The impact of her death will reverberate across the Commonwealth and the world. The moment uh, many people never really imagined would happen has now happened. There you have it. It was a year ago, well, today in the UK, uh, Tomorrow, for most of us in Canada, all of us in Canada right now, more or less, except for in Newfoundland, that the announcement was made that Queen Elizabeth II had died. Um, she died peacefully in her Platinum Jubilee year at the age of 96. Of course, as mentioned, she was the longest reigning monarch in British history. And what followed, of course, was a period of mourning and a reflection on what the Queen had meant to Britain, but also other countries where the monarch is the head of state, including here at home in Canada. Here's what the Prime Minister said uh, soon after, his thoughts about the Queen. She was thoughtful, wise, curious, helpful, funny, and so much more. That kind of sums it up. I mean, there were, you know, it was hard when you think back to that day, just the way the world kind of, not the whole world, but the way everything sort of stopped to pay respects uh, to the Queen. Over the next 11 days, of course, what was called the London Bridge plans uh, in the event of the Sovereign's death were put into place. Uh, there was a procession, vigils, lying in state, a funeral at Westminster Abbey, a Grand State funeral, and a committal service in Windsor. Now, having worked as a correspondent and bureau chief in London for several years, it was a moment that had long been planned, but nothing could quite prepare you for when it was announced. Uh, I traveled to London soon after uh, the announcement of the Queen's death to cover the days uh, that followed, the state funeral as well at Westminster Abbey. And it very much felt like the end of something important, not just the end of her reign, but the end of that continuity that she represented, the bridge that she was to a different era, an era that we often associated with our grandparents, for instance, that those born before the Second World War, those born who grew up in the 50s and who represented a lot of the things that happened in the in this second half of the 20th century and then into the 21st, the era that she represented. Uh, and it led to a lot of questions about what would the place of the British monarchy be 
in the 21st century without this figurehead that had sort of carried it through the ages. Um, and of course, as news of her death was announced, so was that of the succession of her son, Prince Charles, as King Charles III. Eight months later, uh, the king's coronation took place again at Westminster Abbey, where the queen's funeral had been held the previous September. Here's some sound of that. I, William, Prince of Wales, pledge my loyalty to you and faith and truth I will bear unto you as your liege man of life and limb. So help me God. Right, that is the Prince of Wales now, uh, Prince William, uh, speaking to his father, of course, at his father's coronation. Uh, and again, so many questions about what would happen under Charles. I mean, he had been quite an outspoken Prince of Wales. He had been Prince of Wales for decades, so he had many opportunities to, to make missteps. But what has he been like as king? And what, is the, what has a year without the Queen been like? We thought we had asked Royal Commentator uh, Patricia Treble to come back and join us. She was with us that night a year ago or a year ago tomorrow. You can find her work on Substack at Right Royalty. Patricia, welcome back. Thank you. Oh, more than welcome, Ben. It had a year ago. It, it a year. feels longer and it feels shorter at the same time. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yes, it feels the same way. I feel the same way. Do you remember where you were that day when you heard? I was working. Um, we we gotten. Um, I'm on the. I get the Buckingham Palace um, media emails, and so we got that email saying, you know, her doctors had, you know, were with her, and you know, she was ill. And and I was I was looking at us, I was concerned, but look, she'd been she'd been shrinking, as delicately to put it. She'd been shrinking yeah. all year. I mean, we saw her at the Platinum Jubilee and I remember seeing her the last time she went out on that balcony at Buckingham Palace after the concert and I remember thinking, Is that the last time I've seen her there? And I, in the back of my mind I said, Yes. But I couldn't quite accept it. I mean, we all called it the inevitable. I mean, this is what crown experts have called it for years. We knew it was mm-hmm. going to happen. We just didn't know when it was going to happen. And when it really became solid for me that something very serious was happening was when the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the head of the Church of England, asked for everyone to pray for the Queen. And at that yeah. moment, I kind of went, oi. Um, and then the moment of her death, I just, you know, I literally got in a cab and I just ran to the global studios. And was on air until that evening, um, yeah. and it just it just went, and it was, and it was just, yeah, as you said, this moment when everything really stopped, and of course, everyone had really planned for it, but what nobody expected was this woman at ninety six would literally work right up to the moment of her death. I mean, two days before she was saying goodbye to Boris Johnson and saying hello to the new prime minister, Liz Truss. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was two days before her death. That was, it was extraordinary. I mean, and that's the way she wanted to die. She liked, she liked doing her job. She was committed to her job. She was never going to, you know, she was never going to abdicate. She was never going to put her feet up. That was not her. Um, that was not her ethos. You know, she had devoted her life to this, and she made that vow. Um, but to be able to carry it through like that, I think... I think that must have been good for her. And, and people have been talking, um, some clergy who are with her, who go every year to Balmoral and who stay for a few days. One of them is the moderator of the Church of Scotland, the head of the Church of Scotland, was there. And he was there in the days just before her death. And he said she was talking a lot about her faith and her father's faith and how that right. faith. She was a very deeply Christian woman. How has it sustained her? And he said she was completely at peace. She was looking over the highlands. She loved about, She loved Scotland. I was talking about how beautiful a place it was. And he said she was just, she was at peace. As sharp no. as a whip, <clears throat> but, you know, she was ready. 
It's, you, you pointed out there was the photo of her just a few days before, um, looking small, of course, but clutching her purse. And I always thought, well, I guess we're not going to see that again, right? Like, I guess we're not. And, and, you know, it was, it was, it, I have to tell you, when I went to London to cover this, you never know what to expect because, of course, during Diana, it had been just sort of this grief, this, the grief yeah. that had fallen over um, London at the time. But for this, it wasn't grief. It was sort of, it was sadness for sure, but it was, it was a very different. Um, feeling there was sort of this idea of celebrating celebrating her life as she would have wanted exactly because she lived to be 96 good gracious i mean anyone who's had that sort of life you know you live to be 96 you're celebrating you're remembering the fabulous moment and i and i think that was what was so wonderful which was people were remembering that um and i think also people wanted to be part of it because of course She'd been in the background of our lives. Look, she doesn't, she's not in the foreground of most people's lives. She's in the background, but she'd always been there. And so that's when I think when we knew things were going to be, and, and I'd always said it's going to be bigger than everyone thinks. And, you know, you know, you get the editors and the writers, and I'm like, oh, yeah, right. And I'm like, just, just you wait, just you wait. And it was when the coffin, the cortege carrying her coffin with her daughter and behind when it left Balmoral and it made that winding six-hour trip down to Edinburgh in Scotland, right. and people by the thousands were lining the road, like everyone in the village, they were out waiting for that cortege. The cortege would slow down, slowly go through a village, and then pick up speed as it en- ended. And everyone was out because it was one of those moments when you you had to you had to witness it, and it was it was fascinating. All the newscasts, everyone was, was covering every event live around the world. So, like, you know, if you turned on the broadcast, I, I had a friend who was, uh, who was living in the Middle East, and he said all, all the broadcasts, they were just all carrying everything live. And he said, I don't, they don't know what's going on. Like, people are trying to explain, you know, what's happening, the, the, the ceremonies. But they were just fascinated. Everyone wanted to take part because they knew her. Yeah, I thought I thought of that actually covering it because, of course, we'd all been told the, the very many times have been told about her wedding being the first televised event of its stature at the mm-hmm. time, many, many decades earlier. Uh, and here we were watching thousands of people streaming images around the world from their phones and just thinking about the, the, the shifts that she had seen in her lifetime. And that got me thinking a lot about, OK, well, what now? Because she was the continuity mm-hmm. in many ways for this. You know, let's be honest, what felt more and more like an outdated, uh, an outdated institution, the monarchy in many ways, especially for those in, in far, far away places and those who were struggling with this idea of colonialism and having a monarchy and so on. It felt like, mm-hmm. okay, now that we've said goodbye, what next? Uh, and I yeah. guess that's been the question we've been trying to answer for the last year as Charles has kind of come in as king and kept a very low profile, I think. I think so. And I think, well... Part of it is simply that he wanted to have the coronation so quickly. Um, and that just kind of, that throws the scheduling, right? Um, but yeah, it, and he kept doing an incredibly busy schedule. Like, I mean, I, I crunched the data, the royal work data, and he got off to a faster start than other monarchs. And I think simply because also, no, you know, yes, he's, he's 74, but he's just been doing this job for so long and he's a workaholic. But he did come at the bigger issues very gingerly i mean he wanted to get his feet underneath him so he only did one um big state visit that was to germany supposed to be Mm -hmm. france that is was postponed because of the riots and the protests um and he but he still kept up to he had a state visit in britain and it was the president of south africa and i thought 
that also set a tone. Commonwealth. Republican. Doesn't matter. As long as you remember the Commonwealth, that's, that's really the, the important thing. And, of course, Charles is the head of the Commonwealth. Um, and I think basically getting their, they're getting their ducks in a row um, for what is to come this fall, which is going to be, they're going to be going out on big coronation tours. Um, right. Nothing like what the Queen had. These are going to be smaller, much more focused. But I think the focus is going to be the Commonwealth. The focus is going to be the realms. And he's never shied away from the issues that percolate. I mean, when he was in Canada um, last May, in May 2022, Mm -hmm. just before the Queen died, of course, he was talking about reconciliation. He was was talking about very frank conversations with um, the, uh, you know, with Indigenous leaders. About. Yeah, I remember that tour. I remember that tour well. Patricia, would you look at what, I mean, there hasn't been a visit to Canada yet. I gather mm-hmm. the first visit to the realm might be Kenya coming up and there's a visit to France. But you've already said that you, we're going to see more of the king and Queen Camilla coming up uh, in 2023 and into 2024. Yeah, from from who, people I've been talking to, um, there's definitely going to be a visit um, in the near-ish future. Now, remember, the queen took seven years before making her first big visit. Um, you know, she popped in for like a day to open Parliament uh, five years after becoming um, monarch and then waited another two years before coming back in 59. So this is going to be much faster. I mean, let's face it. Um, the, everything is faster these days. Um, but I also think we could also be seeing William and Kate. Um, they haven't been here since 2016. Right. Um, so they are due. I mean, let's say the pandemic really kind of threw all the schedules off. So, but I think I think you know we're going to be seeing them do hitting the big realms, um, and Canada is of course you know right up there. We're we're the northern realm. We're number one. Yeah. I'm going to say we're number one. Um, and but but I think we're also going to be seeing what we're hearing is the more high profile from the supporting cast, as people call them. Do not you know I have much respect for them. So there you go. Um, but Anne has been over twice now we've seen edward over for a big for a big chunk doing a whole bunch of duties didn't wasn't making a lot of press here um but doing a lot of stuff i mean so the organizations and the military units and all that sort of stuff and i think basically they've been using this year to kind of figure out everyone's roles because everyone's roles have shifted right the king had to get used to being king we have to get used to saying he's king and now it seems it seems natural now. I mean, Queen Camilla. Remember Queen Consort back then? Yeah, now it's Queen yeah. Camilla. I'm still it's struggling natural. with Queen Camilla. I'm still struggling with Queen Camilla. But yes, you're right. That's exactly. Exactly. Um, and, but also, they've had, they've had to get used to the rules. And also, they've had to start planning out what they're going to do. Because remember, the, the previous monarch had done no big foreign tours for basically the last decade of her life. Right? That's right. So yes. this is all needs to be speed up. But here's the interesting thing. Is it when you think about 20 years ago, when the Queen Mother was the beloved, um, you know, granny, and the Queen was respected, then the Queen Mother died, and the Queen went up to that role. And now I've got to wonder if now that the top spot is, is Charles, whether he's going to be, well, he's more grandfatherly. Certainly I suppose. He's, he's, yeah. he's relaxed. If you see him, huge crowds. Huge crowds, and he plunges in with an abandon that, of course, his mother would never have done. She, 
she was from a more conservative generation. He right. You mentioned, been, you, know, you, you, know, you mentioned his change of tone in, in the letter that he wrote to Canada uh, during the wildfires. Obviously, that was the last yeah. communication from the king to, to Canada. You mentioned a change in style that you've noticed yeah. already. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been looking at all those the really formal messages that he that he puts out for the world. And he is far more uh, personal. He's often reminiscing on when he was there, when we were you know, were there. He's uh, and his tone has changed. It's it's he's clearly writing them. They're not being written for him or he's had great input in them. And and he's more adjectives, you know, instead of, you know, thoughts and prayers. There are there are you know, he's, he's talking more, to be honest. And I think he wants to make those connections with the realms, with the Commonwealth. Um, and he's also putting out more communications. I mean, goodness, he's, it's more than doubled what the Queen used to do. Um, so I think he knows that to keep the ties going, and let's face it, they are slowly, they're pulling um, to keep mm-hmm. the ties going, you have to, you know, you have to be seen to be believed. This is what the Queen always said. Um, and I think that's, I think that's what they've been just w- putting everything into focus. And now that the coronation is behind them, this is now the next big push. Wow. Um, Patricia, thank you as always so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. And yeah, we'll be up tomorrow. I'll be thinking about, well, you, because I saw we spoke this time last year. So uh, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, anytime, Ben. We just had the worst disaster I've ever seen. All line is burnt to crisp, and it's uh, it's like an apocalypse. We've been pulling people out since last night, trying to save people's lives, and I feel like we're not getting the help we need. You know? Oh my God. Yeah, that was about a month ago. Uh, we're approaching one month since that devastating fire destroyed uh, the town of Lahaina on Maui in Hawaii, a place that I've been to. We were actually there uh, just about four years to the day uh, when that fire struck and just the devastation. We're learning a bit more about the scale of that devastation, what has been lost. Again, it's been nearly a month. Uh, uh, at least 115 people believed to have died. That's confirmed. There are still many hundreds of people unaccounted for. Officials say they are making plans to let some people back into the zones to visit their destroyed homes. So it has been slow going. I understand the scale of the devastation makes it very difficult. There are still questions, again, about how many people died and about what happened exactly. There was the first lawsuit uh, filed yesterday uh, by the son of one of the victims, uh, one of the people who died in that fire. And uh, the recovery effort, though, has now moved from search and recovery to sort of a waste removal phase as the cleanup there continues as well. But you can tell just by looking at the images, as I have over the past few days, that it's going to be a very long road indeed for things to get back to something like normal, if ever, uh, in that part of the world. Um, and so while many eyes have turned to other parts of the world uh, or other events around the world, of course, in, in Maui, they're still trying to rebuild. My next guests uh, founded an organization on Maui called Ignite a Life Foundation. They also opened their doors to dozens of wildfire survivors right after it happened. Um, and they've been raising money for wildfire relief. Robin Muto uh, has been posting videos on YouTube to update people on the situation there. Have a listen. Um, I wanted to update you on the widespread tragedy and disaster that is happening here. Yes, Lahaina burnt. Lahaina burnt, but it has affected everybody on this island um, in some way or another. It just in some way. 
Uh, there are many videos uh, that Robin has posted as well, some of them quite emotional. Uh, we have the honor of having both Robin Muto and her son, Alexander, uh, with us tonight. Alexander is actually studying medicine in Kentucky, and he's been doing a lot of work there. But he founded this uh, this Ignite for, for Life, Ignite a Life Foundation when he was just 15 in Hawaii. Uh, he's from, obviously, grew up there. And uh, Robin is there tonight in Maui, and they both joined me now. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so Robin, much. Maybe we'll start with you because because you're there tonight. Uh, I mean, it'll been a month tomorrow, I gather, since since the fire really hit. Tell me a bit about how things have been pro- progressing because we hear a lot of, especially if you're not there now, what we're hearing a lot is some of the you know some of the assessment of what went wrong and also quite a bit of the anger and the frustration from people in Maui about the pace of the cleanup and the recovery. I think the biggest, the hardest part right now is the uncertainty of people not knowing where they're going to be living. I think, you know, the big organizations came in and put people in temporary housing. Um, but now it's like the longevity. And when are people going to get back to some type of normalcy and um, be able to get to start their lives again, whether they lost their jobs and they want to get back to work or even if they've lost their home, a lot of folks have lost loved ones. But they, we, they, we just need to get everybody back into this certainty and normalcy of just moving forward. And I think that's where there's a lot of questions as how that's going to happen. And that's why I think housing is one of the major, major things that's worrying folks right now. Yeah, I mean, I've covered some natural disasters in my time. And, and one of the things is if you go back a month later, five months later, six months later, it's then that it's really difficult. I mean, the initial the initial tragedy is is so awful, but it's the rebuilding that can often be really slow and painful for those who are still there. And the grief. Tell me a bit about your memories of that day, uh, Robin, because you were there. You were not too far away. Uh, tell me a bit, your, a bit of your, about your memories of, of that day a month ago. So um, I was with uh, my office, which is Maui Cardiology, and the staff that we have here. And I think the biggest, the saddest, one of the most saddest thing was that there was a mom. The island has kind of three different areas that are a little bit geographically isolated from one another. Mm -hmm. So one of my employees here that was working um, had left her two-year-old son in Lahaina with her parents. And I think... Um, that the the phone service went out, there was no communication. And so for her, the biggest worry is that her two-year-old baby is over in Lahaina. She's over here, the roads are closed, and she can't get to her family, um, her parents. She doesn't know if her baby and her parents are perished in the fire. And that was a kind of a, a global worry at our office, just to support her and figure like, And it it went on for two and a half days. She still came to work. And that worry for two and a half days of not knowing if her parents or her two-year-old son was was, um, alive. So I think that was the biggest weight. I think the other weight was just there were fires in three different areas at the exact same time going on in Lahaina, the big one, up country. And then we had staff that were leaving the office also to go home and... um, and evacuate from their homes in Kihei and up country. So it was it was a big weight. Um just this this fear and this uncertainty. So it, it was a crazy day. 
really yeah, Al- Alexander, I, I gather, I think you were in Kentucky already because you're studying there because I actually saw yeah. some reports from Kentucky about you raising funds for Lahaina in Kentucky, which are two places you might not often associate with each other. And then I realized it's because you were there. Um, but it must have been tough not to be, for all this to be happening in a place that is so familiar to you when you were so far away. Well, absolutely. With the, I think that was one of the the toughest parts is being, especially as like getting into the medical field and, and hearing about the the traumas and a lot of the burn victims and stuff like that. There was a real sense of like I I should be there helping mm-hmm. in any way that I can, pulling people out, volunteering at the hospital. Um, and there was just this guilt where it was like, I don't quite have the training yet because I'm a first year medical student. I haven't done all my rotations yet, but, you know, at least I could have been a- another body there. Um, and so that was really difficult. Um, and why I was so dedicated in setting stuff up in Kentucky to bridge a gap between, you know, the continental contiguous United States and all of, you know, eventually North America to uh, Hawaii, because a lot of the issues that plague uh, the state of Kentucky, which is now, you know, my home away from home also plague Hawaii. And there's a lot of similarities. People are really big in the family here. They have massive families, just like they do back home in Hawaii. And so there's a, a lot of people that kind of started to realize like, hey, wait a second, you know, like these people, I can relate a lot to. And so that's why we're doing things to the medical school. We're setting up a chapter of the nonprofit out here, as well as having a benefit concert on the 24th of September, where we're inviting local artists, we're going to be hosting it at the university to raise money to send back home. Because the main important thing, like my mom was saying, is the continued support, the effort that's going to be happening months, you know, years after uh, to rebuild Lahaina. And rebuilding is going to be difficult. It's going to be tough. And it's going to require a lot of moving parts from a lot of different people because it is so remote. People don't realize that. But everything has to come over on a boat. All the personnel have to get shipped in. And during the meantime, you have people that don't have jobs and are not going to have jobs for quite a while because there might be a hesitancy for people to come and visit uh, Hawaii in the future. I mean, even one of my neighbors out here, he um, was like, hey, you know, I'm going to Hawaii in a few months from now. Is, is it safe? Like, should I cancel my ticket? And I told him, it's like, no, please travel to Hawaii in the future. Like, keep your ticket. Uh, you're going to be helping support a lot of local families who need to go back to work. Yeah. And through your Ignite a Life Foundation, which I was reading about, of course, which you started when you were just 15, you must know you must have come across so many people who were impacted by this as well, probably oh, yeah. more than your average teenager would have. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we worked with a lot of the schools in Lahaina there that burnt down. A lot of those kids uh, that were affected or displaced, they're kids I grew up with. A lot of the people that lost their family members or lost um, their businesses. I mean, Lahaina was my, I I was there for like 10 years and that was a place that I grew up, went to high school in Napili and we lived on the outskirts of Lahaina for many years. And so a lot of my early childhood memories was running around Front Street and meeting with the people. I even know a lot of the the super local guys that, you know, if you're not from Lahaina, you probably never heard of like, um, there's this one guy who goes around with a PVC cross and spreads awareness of Jesus. And there's other guys like Coach Joe and just the community there is a very strong 
uh, close-knit community. And it was hard to see a lot of the people affected in the way and, and the efforts that we have been doing to help a lot of these marginalized youth in the past find jobs and careers to see a lot of it shattered and destroyed. Uh, Robin, I, I realize you opened your doors to people who had, who had needed a place to stay. I guess that's a, that's a big issue right now. I gather you still have some people there, uh, just helping out in any, any way you can, right? So yeah, the main, even before the fire, we had a big housing shortage here on Maui. And then after the fire, it's, it's kind of a dichotomy because everyone is in the hotels or in Airbnbs or in private residences. And so they're settled right now. But the problem is we want the tourism to be able to come back to the island so that the local folks can get back to work because we rely on a lot of tourism here on the island. So there's this, this kind of back and forth thing like, well, if tourism comes back, that's great. And that helps the folks with their work. But then where do the locals live? Um, if we wait and we hold off on the tourism, then um, the locals don't have enough money to sustain themselves if they're not working. So it's a really big problem. Um, we're, we're trying to secure two different homes of obviously we've donated our house and then there's another house across the street that we're trying to secure and then some apartment in, um, in on the west side also but that is the big problem is the housing and where do folks end up right because because i think over here i mean obviously canada where i am there's a lot of back and forth between between maui and where i am and i think there was a sense at one point first of all that well immediately after this happened obviously people weren't going to go uh, but the, but sort of a, a, a reluctance to want to go back wondering whether or not this was the right time to go visit because it can be you know people feel like they're intruding at some point but you were talking about just what impact the lack of tourists can have very quickly on the local economy and how it trickles down very fast Really fast. Exactly. And then I think that's one thing that Ignite a Life is trying to do is we're, we're trying to be that bridge to just hold them. So, you know, they got all the food, they got the housing and the water and everything taken care of, but then what's their next step? So if they have a plan for their next step, we want to be able to bridge them between right now and their next plan. So folks, for instance, then maybe they have secured an apartment but that apartment is not furnished. So then we want to be able to help them with that. Or let's say they lost their job and um, no, they didn't, let's say they had a, the job, but they don't have the tools to perform their job. So we want right. to be able to get, get them the tools to perform their job. Or if they did, like I said, like I said, lost their job, help them in between, give them a different job so that they can have some money coming in. So we're the bridge. We're trying to be that bridge in between. And we know it's going to be a really long haul before everything gets back to where it's supposed to be. And Alexander, I know you, you know, Lahaina is a place that's close to you. I think a lot of, there's been some concern about what might be rebuilt there now. And that part of what makes it so special and uh, so special to Hawaiian culture might be lost if, if you don't watch it. I guess that's a consideration as well as we move forward. Well, absolutely. I think another thing that people don't real about, realize about Lahaina is that used to be the capital of the nation of Hawaii. Like that, that used to be Oahu or Waikiki, where the king and queen used to sit in Lahaina town. Um, and so there was a lot of and it made sense kind of for the the olden times, because it, it's more centrally located if you're paddling a canoe or sailing in between a lot of the islands. It's a lot more centrally located. 
um, and easier to get back and forth. How, so there was a lot of history in that town. There, there was a lot of the old sites, there's old houses. And we don't want to see people coming in and just putting in these $3 million homes and put in uh, and pushing out a lot of locals. We want to make sure that when we rebuild it, it's rebuilt with a lot of the community's input and their needs and stuff like that. And I think it's really important to listen to a lot of the people who grew up there and live there and get a lot of their input. And that's going to take some time because a lot of people can, they can disagree on different things and how it should look, but definitely something, anything that we build needs to be rooted in the history and recognize the community bonds that are so strong that have built Lahaina, um, up. I mean, for example, one of the places that burned down on 505 was where they built the Hokulea. And for the people who might not know what that is, it's a if you've ever seen the, the, the Disney show Moana, there's a big double hauled sailing canoes. Now, that was a big thing that they built right. in uh, in Lahaina, right on the beach. And it took years and it was amazing. And that's one of the things that we would want to, you know, rebuild and continue would be to have that. In that that center there. Well, Alexander and Robin, thank you so much for your time tonight. Keep up the good work. Uh, Obviously, we those of us we watch we watch from afar, and uh, I guess if people want to support you, it's at ignitealife.org. That's right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we appreciate it. Thank you so much for everything. Thank Thank you you both. Now we'll talk about uh, reservists, because you'll know if you've been in a disaster area, uh, of which there are many across Canada uh, over the past several years, and you'll have known how much work the military does. Um, The military may not have been necessarily structured or designed to respond to a whole bunch of domestic emergencies, but that's part of their, uh, clearly part of what they do now, and of course it's appreciated. Um, Now, it's, it's the way this past summer has been has actually led to a reconsideration of how we respond to emergencies, period. We talked a little earlier or last week about whether or not Canada needs a FEMA sort of agency or not, like in the States, where it's all emergency management's concentrated under one organization at the federal level. Now, of course, that's a bit more complicated in Canada, where each province and municipality and so on are responsible for their own emergency management plans. But Again, the devastating floods, the latest record-setting wildfire season, the likelihood of more disasters, it's all prompted Ottawa to reconsider the way it responds. Emergency Preparedness Minister Harjit Sajjan today says they're looking at ideas that would be catered to each jurisdiction and disaster. Sajjan says they'll be talking to other countries, including the U.S. and the U.K., about how they do it. We need to make sure that we have a catered response to Canadians. Our the regions in Canada are very unique, especially what we've seen in the Northwest Territories. But even within, if you look at the Atlantic coast and the provinces, we have to be ready to be able to uh, respond. Now, part of that response will clearly still involve the Canadian forces. And a new report out this week from the military ombudsman says that Canada is, in fact, underestimating the mental health impact that domestic emergencies such as wildfires and floods and COVID-19 have had on the military reservists who respond to them. Uh, one of the groups responding to a to a flurry of natural disasters across the country uh, is those 28,500 reservists that Canada has. Apparently, between April 2017 and March 2022, more than 6,000 reservists, that's a lot, were deployed in Canada on nine separate operations. And since then, there have been more, as I mentioned, floods, that uh, tropical storm, Fiona, on the East Coast last year record-breaking forest fires. And again, the Canadian Forces Ombudsman says that they face gaps in policy surrounding physical and particularly mental health before 
and after they are deployed. Now, Gregory Lick, Gregory Lick, the ombudsman, is a longtime reservist himself. So this one is close to his heart. He found that compared to regular force members, a majority of reservists did not get medical screening ahead of their most recent domestic operation. And when they come back, uh, they find it difficult to uh, get help if their mental health is suffering. So there are some gaps there. These are gaps that exist, obviously, with the regular forces as well. But we don't often think about the reservists and the kind of work they're doing within the country now when it comes to these major natural disasters and the kind of impact that can have on people and their mental health. Uh, So joining me now is Gregory Lick. He's the Canadian Armed Forces and Department of National Defense Ombudsman and author of this report. Gregory, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. Tell me about what prompted this investigation, because I think we know the military is doing a lot uh, on Canadian soil these days in a lot of places that we may not have expected in the past. And I guess reservists are are caught up in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly mental health is uh, an important part of the health of our reservists and regular force members, absolutely. Uh, And certainly that was a a part of the, uh, the initiation of this particular report. Uh, the other part is we're seeing over over time in a number of our previous reports that reservists may not get the, the same supports that regular force members do, uh, mainly, mainly because of their part-time nature. And then the other aspect uh, was just that we've never really looked at domestic operations before. And we kind of knew it when we started this report that they were becoming more prevalent. We didn't really comprehend the amount of uh, domestic operations and the amount of forces that would be applied to those uh, wildfires and floods and hurricanes this year. So it was uh, we didn't have any forecast of that at all. No, I mean, the numbers are, are, are perhaps, I mean, there's not surprising, but it, it's a lot of people. I think we found between April of 2017 and March of 2022, 6,100 reservists have been deployed a little bit more. And that was before the last this year, which has just seen, uh, you know, disasters just about everywhere. Uh, those are some pretty intense operations they're taking part in as reservists. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and something that um, they're not generally trained for, they're certainly trained in all the other aspects of their reserve work, but sort of fighting fire, fighting forest fires, floods, they're absolutely able to do that, but it's not something they're well-trained for. And we thought that, uh, you know, there may be a little bit of a, a cultural bias towards maybe domestic operations may not have the same impact on, on people's mental health as, say, a foreign operation or a, de- or a foreign deployment. But I know from my past in search and rescue, uh, that's certainly uh, that element of domestic operations and the other ones in fighting forest fires, perhaps seeing, uh, you know, colleagues uh, lose their homes or uh, others lose their homes. That can have a great impact on somebody's mental health. And we wanted to make sure that the supports, the access, the information was there to help. Yeah, because I guess what you found is that both before and after uh, these deployments, if you will call them that, um, both before and after, you found some gaps about the way reservists, uh, both for you know how they're assessed before they go and what kind of services they have available to them once they're done. Yeah, some, and certainly a lot of it has to do with uh, making sure that information is as readily available to reservists. One of the thing, very simplest things is that because they may only serve one night a week, perhaps a, a weekend every month, uh, they may not have ready access to this information on what supports might be available to them. So these are some of the kind of easy fixes that could be done uh, by the Canadian Armed Forces and the department. 
but certainly their part-time nature is probably the largest uh, issue that affects their ability to even be aware uh, that they may have faced a particular issue after a domestic a domestic operation, uh, but also because the of the nature of these types of emergencies where it happens all of a sudden, they may not have got have gotten their periodic health assessment uh, before they are uh, moved over to a domestic operation. So they may not have a clear understanding, and their unit may not have a clear understanding of their mental health before they're deployed. So they may not have uh, the greatest awareness of maybe there has there been a change after that domestic operation. And that's what we want to make sure that happens a little bit more readily. Right. And also, I, I guess these days, because we are relying more and more on the Canadian forces to get involved in these domestic emergencies, uh, reservists play a big part of that. We do want to encourage, obviously, we want people to we want people people to stay once they're in, obviously, uh, and also to for others to want to take up that challenge. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even just as an employer, you have a legal obligation to ensure the health and safety of your particular members. And so that I mean, that's just a, a, a given. Uh, and at the same time, we want to make sure that people stay on, that people are retained and also that uh, other members of the public join. Too as well, so that's it, it is a it is a recruitment and retention measure. Uh, all of these issues and supports and measures able to provide people the mental health support that they might need. Uh, and you know, at this point in time, we do we don't foresee any change. Uh, probably no big decrease in domestic operations going forward as a result of probably climate change. So we're going to see more of these, and we want to make sure that the CAF is if they're asked. That they're readily able to uh, to support uh, all all Canadians, right? I mean, I, I was reading your bio. I think you you had you have experience as a reservist. You know you know of what you speak, right? No, absolutely. I have uh, I I served for seventeen years off and on with the Naval Reserve, um, and one of the things I mean, I never had a periodic health assessment. Right. I had one at the very beginning. I had one when I rejoined, and I had one be- when I became a diver, but. Uh, we need to get back to that more regular um, idea of providing these periodic health assessments, which are a requirement, but certainly the uh, the resources available uh, within uh, military health services are just n- probably not sufficient right now to be able to support all of that. Uh, and really, there's a dearth of, of mental health professionals across the country in the civilian world as well as the military. So it it's it's a matter of finding the people who want to join and provide the service. Right. And I guess the impact too, what we're concerned about is the impact on the reservists themselves, especially if they're suffering from any sort of uh a trauma following some sort of major event. As you mentioned, you know, a war zone in Afghanistan, I think we have people understand what the impact of that is. But seeing a being sent into a community that suffered a huge loss where homes have been lost or lives have been lost, uh, especially on your on your home soil, could be no less traumatic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a bit more experience in the search and rescue area. And, right. you know, certainly that type of trauma, when you when you find somebody who has lost their life, in, in my experiences in the water, um, you know, that can have a tremendous ex- uh, impact upon your mental health. And I'm going to assume that, you know, we shouldn't be assuming that the uh, the impact of helping somebody fight a forest fire, particularly when it's affecting people's shelter and the lives and the homes that they built over time, we shouldn't diminish that or think that it's any less than uh, what might have happened in a war and on a battlefield, uh, because it's all independent. It's all very personal in nature. 
you, you looked at some, you have some recommendations here about how to fix them. I understand there's been some recommendations in the past that haven't been fully implemented. So that must be a source of some frustration, but you have some new ones as well uh, that you'd like to see or hope to see uh, done. Yeah, I think and even just in speaking uh, with some of the leadership of reserve units across the country and reserve organizations, you know, the simplest things uh, that we kind of all do on a, on a daily basis with our families, we check in with them. And because of the part-time nature of reserve work, uh, you know, there are many leaders out there in reserve units that actually check on their people periodically, maybe before, during, and after, uh, well, certainly before and after uh, domestic operations. We've recommended that a more rigorous and formal process be put in place to track that, to make sure that that is done in a more formal manner. Uh, certainly that we we check in on our people, certainly after a, a domestic operation to see that they're okay. They may not be medical professionals, but they can do that check-in just to, just to see that somebody, just to, so those people know that somebody is listening to them and, and knows that there are supports out there. So also making sure that information on supports, uh, you know, uh, 1-800 lines they could call for mental health support. All those types of things are easily available uh, to them at home. Uh, as well as at the unit. Right. You were saying that virtual care is a big thing because, of course, just by the very nature of what reservists do, they may not have access to internal systems all that often or the bulletin board, so to speak. I don't think people use them as much as they used to, but they don't have the same kind of, they're not surrounded by that support as often. Yeah, and certainly uh, reserve units, and particularly army reserve units who make up a large proportion of the uh, reservists that uh, that are applied to domestic operations, they more than any of them uh, may be located in very isolated small communities. And it, it's important that virtual care is available to them because they may not have easy access to the big cities where uh, more um, more availability of mental health care is available. So that that virtual health care, it's become more common during the pandemic. And we, we've recommended that that be applied a bit more, uh, bit more, make it a bit more available, particularly to those isolated communities where reserve units sometimes are located. Yeah, you mentioned already that there is a lack of of, of doctors. Period. And the healthcare system, we know, is strained uh, right across the board. But you were also hoping for more mental health screenings as well. Uh, really, just to put an emphasis on it, I guess that's what I, in reading your report, that's sort of what jumped out to me was that it's really about placing renewed emphasis or even increased emphasis on mental health when it comes to our reservists. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, mental health, as we all know, is a very difficult. Um, issue to be able to understand uh, because we can't see it in many cases. And so um, it's important that, you know, sometimes supervisors have a better understanding of the questions to ask, that type of thing, um, but also to make sure that people uh, have the tools sometimes to understand within themselves, are they facing a particular mental health issue? And it's not, you know, I'm just having a bad day. Maybe it's something a little bit more, but then they know that they can reach out to particular support mechanisms uh, in a whole variety of ways so that they can get the help that they need. Uh, and that, that to me, is, is vitally important, particularly for reservists who don't always have that, that contact 24 hours a day, every day of the week, 
such as reserve members might, uh, sorry, such as regular force members might have. Right. And, and this, of course, part of when your uh, whole investigation or study began was sort of coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we know some of the things that reservists must have seen alongside other members of the forces when it came to some of the work that they had to do during the height of the pandemic must have been one of the things that would have been a real source of concern. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I don't have any sort of personal um, information on what happened to people that may have entered the long-term care, some of the reservists that entered the long-term care homes in Quebec and Ontario. But I think we can probably understand it from the report uh, and the reports that came out that they saw some pretty horrific things. And I can understand after seeing those types of things that they may have had, that may have had some impact upon their mental health. But that was just one of the Uh, one of the things that happened during the pandemic. And now we're seeing uh, a lot more commonly forest fires, floods, earthquakes, tornadoes. Uh, All of these things are happening across the country and we are relying currently on the the CAF to be able to support that and particularly reservists. So uh, we do want to see them taken care of. Um, and the CAF understands this completely. They want to see themselves, they want to see reservists taken care of too as well. Right. I was going to say the CAF has a lot on its plate these days. The Canadian Armed Forces does, Department of National Defense does. Uh, always tough to push things up to the top of their agenda, but you feel like this one's been listened to. As, as far as you're concerned, this, the reception to this has been good. Yeah, I think and while we haven't received yet a, a formal response, uh, it, just in talking to the leadership of the CAF across the organization, uh, they they have some very positive views of our report, I think, and they want to do the right thing. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the hardest things it will be for military health services is, is to find those uh, those mental health professionals out there and compete with the civilian healthcare systems to uh, attract them into the um, into military health services. That's that's tough for everyone. There's a shortage everywhere. Right. Uh, Gregory Lick, thank you so much for uh, for sharing the the information and the details about your report with me tonight. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Ben. My pleasure. We've been talking about back to school all week. It was back to school in other places last week, but most people went back to school, at least according to my Facebook feed, because I saw a thousand pictures this week of kids going back to school. And some, you know, they have those great pictures where they show sort of grade one, grade six, grade seven, grade 12, and you get the sort of before and after. And it's it's kind of cool to see your friends' kids grow up um, on Facebook as they go back to school. Some of them say no way to those pictures these days obviously, but uh, there are a lot of great ones out there. And, and, you know, it's kind of always an exciting time, although it was really hot back in the uh, in Montreal and Toronto and Ottawa and so on. So I feel a little sympathy for all those kids having to endure hot summer weather and go back to school. It was a little more, it was a little more September-like out here on the West Coast. One of the things that we've been talking about uh, all week, we've probably, probably seen some reports about this, is sort of concerns about an ongoing shortage of teachers, support staff, and so on within the school system. Now, they vary from province to, from province to province and territory to territory. Um, for instance, in a place like Nova Scotia, they say most full-time roles are filled, but they're having a lot of trouble with substitute teachers in the north. Nunavut is reporting a 9 to 10% vacancy rate at the beginning of the school year. Uh, while some schools are fully staffed, other communities are struggling. In Quebec, two weeks ago, that edu- the education minister there, Bernard Dreville, confirmed, confirmed that schools, uh, that the province was lacking something like 1,850 full-time teachers and more than 6,600 part-time teachers. Uh, that's a lot of teachers missing. And in one greater Ontario school district that was featured in a global news story earlier this week, classes are being cancelled because of a teacher shortage. And this is a continuation of something that happened last year. Ryan Harper is with the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. 
Last year, it started to become a real serious issue with virtually every secondary school in Peel having to deal with uh, regular class cancellations, students not having a teacher just because there aren't enough of them. But last year, we had 54 secondary teachers in the Peel District School Board resigned. And then we had 10 more resignations over the summer. Uh, that Those numbers are unprecedented. Yeah, indeed. Here's how some school boards or school districts have, have, have had to sort of overcome this. Uh, this is a really great story, actually. An anonymous $200,000 donation uh, helped a BC school district entice teachers to come to work in rural schools. Teresa Downs is superintendent with the Gold Trail School District. She says uh, the $10,000 and $15,000 awards helped fill more than a dozen empty jobs, meaning the district no longer has the staff shortage it faced at this time last year. It's night and day on how I feel personally and the sense that I'm getting as I've visited schools this week. There is a tangible difference in morale and there just seems to be far more optimism in the year that we are going to have and how we will be able to serve students to our best. Which is absolutely great for the Gold Trail School District, but you can't rely on donations uh, to, to try and solve a teacher shortage right across the country, can you? Although that's a really great story. Joining me now with more on this is Annie Ohana. She's a teacher and the local representative for the Surrey Teachers Association uh, out here at BC. Annie, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, how is, uh, I, I, saw, I saw an interview you did with Global a little earlier in the week. Mm -hmm. How has school been? How has the return been? Yeah, you know, as always, it's kind of that hectic start, right? Everybody kind of zooming from zero, um, you know, but it's great to be back and, and certainly like to be with students and, and to get the year going. There's always that excitement. Um, that being said, that the apprehension is real um, because even now, first week, and we're already worried about not having uh, what we call like department head release days where you can get in-service or training. Like already there's a sense that we, will, we do not have enough teachers. Uh, we we will need to cover classes, like even week one, and and you already really? feel that that sense, that tightness, right? Um, nice. So, I mean, in terms of the teaching, it's wonderful, um, but but the realities of, of shortages and just general lack of funding, it, it's a real concern. Right. I guess I guess you know, having spent time in schools, right away mm -hmm. you can walk in, look at what the roster looks like, and figure out whether there's much uh, much much of a safety net there for you, right? Yes, absolutely. And the fact that we don't have uh, enough TOCs on some days or substitutes, as, as that's the other name for them. Um, the reality is over the last several years, uh, people have lost prep time. So the time that you're supposed to prepare for your classes, it's in our contract. Uh, instead, you're covering other classes. Um, there's even something called remedy, right? That's supposed to kind of give you back or, or prep time recovery. But again, it's kind of like what happened in Gold Trail, right? It's you're trying to fill the holes, right? In a dike that's failing. Um, right. And it's not this like, you know, purposeful long term solution um, to what is a problem that just seems to be a snowball. Yeah, if everyone had a benefactor that could help entice teachers with bonuses, <laughs> yeah. that would be, that wouldn't that be something? Um, I mean, we do. It's called the government, but. It is. Know. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Uh, what is, I mean, I, I realize that sometimes if you were to sort of drop in at your school, even, uh, you might not notice it, right? You might, I mean, there's 
probably the classrooms are full, the teachers are there, uh, but it must have an impact. And you must, as, a, as an educator, you must see what that impact yeah. is. Absolutely. Now, we know that in other jurisdictions, they literally have to cancel classes, right? So, yes. you know, it depends on where you are. But sure, yeah, I, I don't necessarily see it on an everyday. That being said, the mental health, again, the loss of prep time, the fact that our most vulnerable students, those with special needs, are not getting the services they require, the support they need in their classrooms, that's real. That is everyday. That is something that's something, you know, so when I think of education, I just think of teachers, right? I think of uh, EAs right or uh, there's all kinds of different but educational assistance other staff that that actually provide the support for mental health for uh, learning disabilities and and it's just uh, so that that's an everyday reality Uh, but yeah no I I don't think we should measure this by like when schools have to close Um, at that point game over right Um, it's more about that our system uh, cannot perform at its highest capacity because we don't have enough people joining the profession. Many are leaving very early on. And so it's causing these wide uh, chasms. Yeah, I mean, you're you're with the Surrey Teachers Association as yeah. well, so I'm sure you have sight outside of your own school and what you hear in your own teachers' room and so on. What Absolutely. is what is the problem? What problems? What has been the problem these days? Because you get the sense that uh, I mean, just like every industry, I suppose, all yeah. industries are having trouble recruiting these people these days. But what is it about teaching right now? Where where is the gap? Yeah, it's it's multifaceted, right? So number one, the reality is like the working conditions are not improving; they're getting worse. And and though we have like these new contracts, um, no, th- nothing was uh, was uh, improved based on our like working conditions. Uh, you have educators that have um, you know worse language, like adult educators or online educators, where there's no class size and composition at all. We do live in BC. We have a cost of living crisis, right? It is a very expensive place to live. So teachers, many, you know, we're basically living paycheck to paycheck almost. Um, And the denigration of the profession, to be quite honest, uh, for a lot of people, especially specialty teachers, you are more likely to make money elsewhere. Um, work less, have less, um, you know, workload, and and, ha- and be in better mental health. So, you know, trying to attract teachers to a profession where they feel that they're not heard, they're, they're just made to work endlessly, and, and they're not supported by their government, etc. Um, that, that means many people either quit soon, like we have a five-year mark that tends to be that point, um, or it, it makes people think, well, perhaps teaching is not for me to begin with. And you mentioned it because you hear similar stories, obviously, coming out of healthcare and nursing yeah. specifically. Yeah. Uh, where mm-hmm. where are they going? Where, I mean, I guess there are a lot of things a teacher can do, especially if they're not if they're not that long out of out of their training. Um, yeah. You know, they they can reset, I suppose. Well, I think we have to understand that teachers are not just born teachers, right? right. Um, actually, mo- and, and, and in BC, like they are trending a little bit older, but many of us actually had careers before that. Uh, we mm-hmm. have many skill sets, uh, not necessarily to do with our subject matter, per se, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and especially when you look at things like languages or, you know, trades, right? All those things, like these are people often entering the profession a little bit later on and, and really struggling with that. So I think it's important to realize that teachers don't just go to teacher education um, and then join the profession. I myself started at 28, right? right. So, and that, that, you know, that, that's not old, but it's not young either, right? So the reality is there are opportunities outside. 
And again, the fact that we have to fight for every scrap and, and rarely get what we actually need, rarely address that critical underfunding piece, which is why we're lacking staff, um, is something that, you know, people don't want to be on strike all the time. Uh, people don't want to have to, you know, bash their head against the, uh, the wall and worry about, you know, how they're going to feed their families and, and save. Um, it's sad when a professional, when, the, when people with advanced degrees, including masters and PhDs, um, are living lives where they feel that they're just, you know, grunt workers. Right. Well, I, I don't think anyone out there would disagree that that forever and ever teachers have been grossly underpaid for the service they provide. I think we all, yeah. I think we could all agree on that, right? I mean, yeah. part of it's yeah. the way the system is set up. Um, yeah. and, and, and you, 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 you've obviously uh, decided to. You, you're still there, right? But it, mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like it's, it's it can be a struggle, especially if you've known another industry before you got into it. Absolutely. And, you know, we we just did a member survey in our union and it was very clear Uh, the mental health, the physical health, you know, is, you know, the detriments of of the job are very real. Um, Teachers are feeling very burnt out, even if they stay in the profession. You know, we love what we do. I love my students. I love the ability to build community. Um, You know, I do a lot of outside work as well, like the ability to make our schools those true transformative spaces is an incredible gift to have. Um, That being said, it comes at a very harsh cost. And that's what our members across BC are saying. Um, this is not like, you know, a job where, yeah, there's happy moments and there's great moments, but but truly uh, there are some very difficult times. And, and, you know, we have to deal with that on an ongoing basis. Annie, short of someone, some benefactor donating money so you can attract <laughs> and retain more teachers, what does a short-term solution look like, do you think? Oh, short term is an interesting one. Well, yes, or, um, or yeah, I suppose there aren't any, perhaps, right? Yeah, and that's because we've been trying, right? And and that's through kind of things that the district or the ministry are trying, and and you know they've kind of been hit and miss, to be quite honest with you. Um, I, but then again, um, the realities of of what the classroom looks like, right? Um, our class sizes, uh, which which is what workload is about, right? The amount of kids in our classrooms, the composition, right? The IEPs in our classroom, all these things need to be addressed in in a foundational way and to be honest with you nothing is stopping from any government any province uh from pumping more like actual funds into the system what i find is that we're constantly told that there's more money being invested but that's not actually true it's just kind of the same money that they keep repeating over and over again um and so that that to me even though it doesn't sound like very short term um it is because if you put that money into the system and you can hire more teachers you make sure the salaries are competitive i also hearken to the sorry chicago teachers union uh where they talk about bargaining for the common good so when you talk about affordable housing that's a major concern so teachers are leaving are not able to continue their profession because they can't even afford to live here so dealing with those realities right is also important so it's not just about the school itself but also the climate you build around professionals and their ability to actually actually uh, live and and thrive in their environments. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that's just one of the things I was thinking about. We've talked about this in other circumstances for other professions. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many people these days on a teacher's salary can afford to live in Vancouver? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, absolutely. It's, it, yeah. 
Yep, because teachers put in a lot of extra hours. There is no such thing as eight to three, right? I I hope teachers understand that. And so you're giving up a lot of extra hours. You know, a lot of teachers have second jobs. Uh, More and more teachers have side hustles, right, Uh, just to try to make those ends meet. But but that is terrifyingly difficult on one's body and one's mental health. Um, And so and that's for any profession. I'm not trying to, you know, say just teachers, right? Um, I think generally that that can be very uh, damaging. So as, as teachers, we're really asking for more support in the classrooms. We're asking for ministries and, and governments to really step up uh, and to see that that long-term investment is super important. And it might sound expensive, but in the long run, you'll have healthier education and education is a human right. And the more our kids cannot go to school and we know special needs kids are the ones that suffer the most, that you know can't have to stay home. There's no buses to bring them to school. There's not enough um, educational staff support. So, you know, this is, this is a human rights issue in terms of a teacher shortage and being able to actually provide the education that students need. Right. What would you like parents to do? Because they're voters, they're taxpayers, they have their kids yeah. in, these, in, in your classes amongst, yeah. amongst others. What do you think parents yeah. could be doing here? Absolutely. You know, first of all, parents are also teachers, right? So that's yes, indeed. Interesting. Yes, absolutely. But, but generally for parents, I want them to understand that education is being politicized, right? So those things out there like, oh, cell phones. And I know these are issues. Believe me, it's an issue. But, <laughs> yeah, we talked about uh, it this but week. Nonetheless, guilty, guilty. Like, yeah, yes. but looking at these smaller things is actually not what's going to fix the, the larger problems. So I want, I want parents to understand that if you feel your child's not getting supported, uh, the answer to that is to really push the government to think about what smaller class sizes would mean. Uh, What does it mean to actually provide teachers with the supports they need so that they feel that they can provide those supports in the classroom and not feel overwhelmed and just leave? Um, So I think it's for all of us to think education is a cornerstone of our economy, of everything. Um, And so really fighting for those bigger pieces is super important. Yes, there are some other issues. And and please talk to your teachers. Uh, I know we're all busy, right? People are working. I understand that. Um, but your child really matters. And so talking to teachers about what their everyday looks like, you know, during a parent-teacher night can really help you understand what's actually going on in classrooms. And while you talk about other issues, make sure you, you push for that true funding of education because it truly, truly matters. And yes, when it comes time to bargaining, please support those notions that we're putting forward um, that better pay will, will help us stay here, like fair pay. We were ninth in the country until very recently, and I think we're still third um, in terms of BC alone. Um, that these things are not about salary; it's not about just you know give me my money. Uh, we're also fighting for other realities that make the workplace um, really healthier and and more conducive to an educational environment that students can thrive in. You started at 28. Any regrets? Any regrets about going into teaching? No, not at all. Not at all. And I've been very (laughs) blessed to have support and to get out there. And I'm always working with community. So to me, education, there's no walls to education. Uh, Our schools are like community centers. And and actually, while education is politicized, uh, I think teachers need to use their voice to fight for our students' rights, to fight for our parents' rights. Um, and, And at the end of the day, you get to build the future. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, Annie, well put. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. To reach the next level, for them to be here in the quarterfinals is a great thing. And you can see the potential. The game of basketball continues to grow, evolve, and develop. So many players in the NBA from Canada, so many players overseas from Canada. 
and look at this star-studded roster they have. They're ready for this challenge before them with Slovenia. Right, and that was a few days ago. Team Canada, if you haven't been paying much attention, are playing and playing very well at the World Basketball Championships that are taking place in the Philippines and in Indonesia. Uh, they beat Slovenia the other night, who are a very good team, 100-89. to 89. That was the match, the, the preview of that, or at least the introductions ahead of that game that you were just listening to there, um, which was a big win, putting them in the semifinals against Serbia. That takes place in about four hours from now. Uh, 4.30 in the afternoon uh, Manila time. So coming up, or 4.45 rather, in the afternoon Manila time. So if you're if you're a night owl, you can watch it live. If not, I'm sure you can get up and see the highlights uh, tomorrow. But it will be a big, big game for Canada because a win sends them to the finals. And that will be a first medal for Canada at this particular championship ever. We've already qualified for the Olympics by beating Spain in the round of 16. Spain were the defending champs, so that was a huge win as well. And this comes after, you know, a long time of pundits both in the Amer- in America and in here obviously and here in Canada talking about how Canada was due to become a basketball powerhouse in this country. We have so many players playing in the NBA now, big stars. You remember, of course, Jamal Murray won an NBA championship with the Denver Nuggets uh, just recently, and many, many others. Steve Nash, if you think back, I mean, there's been the list now is very, very long. Uh, but there have been some real losses and some infamous heartbreaks for the Team Canada men's basketball program over the last little while. I don't think they qualified for the 2012 Olympics. I don't think they qualified for the 2016 Olympics either. Um, There's been some real heartbreak. But they found their groove at this championship's in uh, the Philippines and Indonesia. They're ranked 15th in the world, but again, they beat France, they beat Latvia, they slipped up against Brazil, but then beat Spain, they beat Slovenia. And uh, that's why they've not only qualified for the 2024 Olympics, but again, have that chance at a first-ever podium finish if... They should beat Serbia. It's guaranteed. If not, they'll have to play for that bronze medal against the U.S. or Germany, who are playing in the other semifinal. Again, the game starts in about four hours' time, if you're into that. Uh, Thanks. I mean, part of Canada's incredible success at this tournament has been the play of one man, uh, Shea Gilgius-Alexander, who is from Toronto. He's a point guard who plays for the Oklahoma City Thunder in the NBA. He's averaging more than 24, 25 points a game. Have a listen. Here comes Shea. Gilgis Alexander, look at him go. Oh my goodness. Did that really happen? Shay Gilgis Alexander. Look at this. This is the play right here. He goes behind his back there. Then he avoids Dragic. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those plays where he basically cuts right through the defense and, and goes right to the hoop and game over. Uh, it's been an incredible tournament for him. And we're doing this without names like Jamal Murray and Andrew Wiggins, who you may know. Uh, so is this the tournament where Canada finally cements its status as one of the world's top basketball playing countries, a place we probably should have ascended to a while back, but it's taken some time. Uh, joining me now with more on that is Paul Sir. He's former executive director of Alberta basketball and former uh, three-on-three director for Canada basketball. Paul, thanks for your time tonight. Great to be here, Ben. Thank you. I was reading an interesting, you know, you always see what other countries are saying. So I was reading some of the American coverage of what Canada has been doing at this particular uh, World Championships in Manila. And the article was called Canada has finally delivered on the international stage. And now it's time to get greedy. I hadn't realized there were so many pundits out there who've long had high hopes and high expectations for Canada and just how much of a game changer this tournament has been. It's really true, Ben. And I, I would hearken back to Mike Krzyzewski, who back in 2008 
said that Canada would be on the podium by 2016. He saw the talent that Canada was producing 15 years ago. And I, and I think it's safe to say people have been disappointed globally at Canada not being able to field its best team and not to be able to deliver the kind of performance people expected of them with the talent level we have in this country until now. Yeah, there's been some disappointment over the years of, I think, back to losses to countries that we probably shouldn't have lost to. Panama, it comes back, comes to mind. There was the loss that uh, eliminated us from the 2012 Olympics. But what do you think has been the secret here at this tournament? Because everything seems to have gelled. And like all good tournament teams, they seem to be getting better every game. Well, I think a couple of things have to really be pointed out. Number one, it's been the commitment on the part of Canada basketball at the board of director and management level to put the financial resources into developing the program properly. They have great coaching. They have a year-round approach to their national team programming. They have actively recruited and worked with the NBA players and their agents to make sure that not all of them, but some of them are there. And that leads into my next point of why this is all coming together is Not only is it a number of NBA players, which represents the best players in the best league in the world, but it's one player in particular, and that's the presence of Shea Gilgis-Alexander. He's the guy. Yeah, he's been the guy. Canada rises and falls on that man's shoulders. He's that that big, muscular guy yanking a semi-trailer up a hill with a a bunch of logs on it, (laughs) and everybody else is there supporting him, but it's all come down to him. Yeah, he's been hitting, I think he's averaging 25 points a game, 30 in some of these big matches, including against uh, Slovenia in the quarterfinals. Uh, and, but I looked at, too, I mean, what's been interesting is that, of course, Shea is, they're young. They're young. I mean, there are some older players on this team, but the, the core of this team is still young. Oh, this team's very young. And as I mentioned before, I, I, I really want to emphasize that word, some, and some of the NBA players, like when you look at the list of who's not there, Jamal Murray. Oh, Jamal Murray, yeah, for sure, yeah. For sure, but Andrew Wiggins, yeah. um, Thurin, Sharp. I mean, there's there's five NBA players that didn't even sign up for this, and maybe they will, maybe they won't, maybe they'd be selected, maybe they shouldn't be. Because one of the things I think that Canada has done well, and I would, again, using the term, harken back to the American Dream Team, and the more more significantly, the redeemed team, when America fell from grace and then decided that they were going to commit their resources to come back, they demanded a multi-year commitment from the players. And in return, they would give that back to them. That doesn't mean they can't tweak the lineup, but they're looking to build around this young nucleus. When you have a player who's one of the top 10 players in the world, and Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and I think has been the best player in uh, the World Cup, uh, you've really got a foundation to look forward to. Yeah, I was interested to see, too, of course, there are players on the team because it's not all NBA players. There are a couple of guys who play in Spain. Uh, There's one player who plays in Israel. So they also have a a good idea, maybe even a better idea at this stage of the game. And I know there's a lot of NBA talent on all those teams, but some of those players will have also seen some of the other players that they're playing against. Obviously, the big win for Canada was beating for defending champion Spain uh, back when, a few games ago, back in the round of 16. Well, back in the round of 16, and they beat them in an exhibition game as well. And you're talking about the storied top program in the world in terms of FIBA basketball. 
this has really been a wake-up call, not just for Spain, but for everybody, that this Canadian team has arrived. And you're right, the, the international blend of players on, in, on this roster gives not only the experience of playing against other players like you indicated, but also the fact that they're used to playing FIBA basketball, which is very different from NBA basketball. Luka yeah. Doncic says it's easier to play in the NBA than it is to play uh, in FIBA leagues. And he's 100% right. I, I This is a bit of a, a stretch, but I would call FIBA big boy basketball, where NBA is more stylized basketball with all the restrictions they have on defensive three seconds, the way you can play a zone, the way you have to guard. In FIBA, if you have a big guy who can plug the middle up, he's standing in the middle. There's no defensive three seconds. So the dynamics in FIBA basketball are much different, much more physical, uh, completely different game. When Canada, for instance, lost to Brazil, it was because Brazil mucked it up with a bunch of junk defenses, plugged the middle, and were very, very physical with Canada. That's different than the NBA. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a bit of the difference between, say, international hockey and, and NHL hockey, right? That, that, that although they, the differences will be different, but uh, the idea that that you, the international game demands some adjustments, and sometimes teams that are all NBA players, like the dream teams of the past, have a slightly harder time adapting to that. Except when you have Michael Jordan and well, except, well, Yeah, <laughs> but, there are exceptions <laughs> to that rule, right? Yeah, there, there are. That the, the dream team is the exception. But it was only, I mean, four years later, in 1996, the U.S. struggled to win the gold medal. And then in 2000, they lost it Mm -hmm. because of exactly what you just described, Ben, because of the adjustment that they had a hard time making to FIBA basketball. One aspect of FIBA that has always been there and is even more accentuated now is you have to be able to shoot the three. And the U.S. did not used to be able to shoot the three that well. It was more slash and drive. And as I indicated, you can junk the defense of uh, defenses up, which makes it very difficult to do that as opposed to the NBA where you, you are able to do it more readily. So, uh, yeah, there is an adjustment, but I think the blend of talent that Canada has and the fact that their coach, uh, Jordi Fernandez, is an international coach who understands FIBA very, very well, that's created a huge advantage that Canada did not possess in the past. So the big test coming up in a matter of hours is the semifinals. So listeners know Canada's already qualified for the Paris Olympics because of that win over Spain. So job number one is done. But now we're looking to podium, and we've never podiumed at this event, or at least if we've ever podiumed at it, it was a long, long time ago. Um, and Serbia is up next, and that's they're a tough team. But while we don't have Jamal Murray, who's an NBA champion, they don't have Nikola Djokic, who's, who's obviously a name that anybody who watched the finals last year will remember very well. Interesting, isn't it, that the two players we mentioned are teammates on the NBA champs? Yeah. Uh, but you're right. They they miss Jokic. The thing with Serbia is they have a basketball culture that I would say is unlike any other. It's a country of 10 million people, but they get after it, and they have a tremendous amount of pride that transcends a lot of maybe what you would say the athletic ability that Canada is going to bring that Serbia doesn't possess. Serbia is going to have to impose its will to have a chance to beat Canada. They're going to have to mix it up and be very physical. And one area, I think, if you had to point to one area that uh, Serbia may have an advantage, it's in the middle with their big player, Nikola uh, Malutinov, Mm -hmm. who's a, a very, very good player around the basket, a traditional big man. 
And we all know where uh, NBA emphasizes positionless basketball. That's not so in the Euro Cup and in the European leagues and in FIBA. Traditional big men are still a premium. So uh, they have Bogdan Bogdanovich, very good NBA player as well, and other guys who can just play. But what you're really going to be facing is the Serbian culture and their determination to win. Uh, if I could just mention, who's the top tennis player in the world? The Serbian. Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah Djokovic. Yeah. The Serbians today just won the FIBA 3x3 Euro, European Cup. They've won five in a row. And now you've got the Serbian team who you know have been in the back rooms preparing specifically for Canada. So I have no doubt Canada is the favored team, and they should be, but it's going to be a battle. Yeah, this one matters. Uh, this one matters back in Belgrade, right? This is going to be a big deal back in Serbia. What's been interesting to see here, too, is that there's been a bit of a fever here as well. And I know we spent a lot of time sort of following the men's soccer team, women's soccer, obviously. Uh, but in this case, it feels like this team has sort of captured the imagination a little bit. And it's been a long time coming. Well, there's there's one word that uh, that uh, gives us the reason why, Ben, because that's a valid point. That's called winning. Yes. Winning makes all the difference. When the Raptors won the NBA championship, the fever for basketball went through the roof. The same thing will happen if this team is able to medal and uh, better yet, win the gold medal. So you're 100% right. This has captured people's imaginations. And again, I give credit to Canada basketball because they finally made the commitment that needed to be made to put the resources in, get the right people involved, and recruit heavily and build relationships with the key players in the country to make the commitment to the nation to have pride in wearing the uniform, to represent the flag. We have all of those elements now, and that's what trickles down and permeates uh, Canadian sports culture now, because we have a team that's on the cusp of doing something very special. They already have, as you indicated, they're in the Olympics next year. What if they can medal or better yet gold get a gold medal in the World Cup? Yeah, it's nice to think of Canada. I mean, it, it really reflects the Canada of 2023 that we're, but we're still a hockey nation, but we're also a soccer nation and we're also a basketball nation. And it's fun to see that actually play out on the court, on the pitch uh, or on the ice. 100%. I think the the, diversi- the diversification of sport interest in the country has taken root now, as you indicate. Yes, we're a hockey nation. That's a great source of national uh, culture and pride. But basketball, soccer, there's a lot of kids playing. In fact, there's a lot more kids playing soccer than any sport. And basketball is the fastest growing participation sport in the country. So there, there are changes in the new generation that are shifting the sports landscape for sure. It'll be interesting to see now if, if Canada should get by Serbia uh, later today or tomorrow, so to speak. What yeah. awaits them is either the USA or Germany. And uh, obviously the U.S. are the favorites there. That could be a big match. If Canada meets the U.S. in the final, I think a lot of Canadians are going to find them find a way to get up in the middle of the night to watch that one. Couldn't agree with you more. And boy, would that be a dream matchup to be able to uh, behold on the part of Canadian basketball and sports fans. I totally agree with you, Ben. Uh, Now, the U.S. has shown it's vulnerable. This is a really good U.S. team. This is not an unbeatable USA team, as was indicated the other night. And Germany has been unbeaten to this point. I I think I'd be lying if I said I wasn't looking forward to a potential Canada-U.S. gold medal game. 
Well, uh, you, you, and, you and everyone, I believe, uh, still a few yeah. steps to go before we get there. Paul, thank you so much. Ben, my pleasure. Thank you. 